Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you're visiting with us, my name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. We're glad that you've joined us for worship. We are in our fall sermon series, Christ and Culture, Following Jesus in a Fallen World. In this series, we're looking at what it means to be in the world, but not of it. We're called to be holy, the scriptures tell us. Therefore, we must be wise, discerning children of the light. And while there are many elements of culture that can be affirmed, we cannot uncritically accept all aspects of culture without first examining them in the light of Christ and the gospel. So viewing the culture through the lens of Christ. Remember, that's what our art here behind me is all about. So this fall sermon series is about applying the gospel to every area of life and using cultural discernment as we navigate the world as kingdom people. And again, here is what we've been saying about culture. We define it this way, what human beings make of the world in these two senses. One, the things that we make, so art, things like art, music, literature, clothing, food, gardens, architecture, technology, all of those things, the things that we make, and the meaning that we make. You see, we communicate meaning by what we make because what we make says something about who we are, our identity and purpose, why we're here, what or who we worship, which we'll look at this morning, what we value, what is true, what is good, what is right and wrong, so forth and so on. So what do we do when we encounter aspects of culture within a fallen world that is not reflective of God's glory and his goodwill for creation. What then? Well, here are some unhealthy postures. Just all of this is a little bit of review if you're, if you're just joining us and a refresher. The four unhealthy postures toward culture. One, we can condemn culture, which we see a lot of people doing, either withdrawing or warring against it. And remember, Jesus saw people in his own day doing that. Jews, uh, you like the Essenes, who were a monastic group of folks who withdrew from the temple. They thought it was corrupt. They withdrew from Jerusalem, and they hid in a monastery out in the wilderness. Uh, they're the group that's responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. So we do thank them for that. But yet they still had this attitude toward culture is, is evil, it's polluted, it's corrupt, we can't taint ourselves, right, with it. Or the zealots, Jesus also saw a group of the zealots who wanted to fight, who wanted to do violence to overthrow their oppressors. And of course, Jesus rejected both of those approaches to culture. There's also critiquing culture, where we're just interested mainly in discussing and debating ideas, as if we could argue people into the kingdom. There's copying culture, offering cheap imitations and alternatives, creating a, a Christian subculture and a bubble that often protects us from the world as well. And then there is consuming culture, mostly mindless conformity. As I said, uh, some of us grew up in a very conservative fundamentalist Christian context, and, and so we were told you can't eat this, drink this, go there, yet don't dance 
what is it, don't dip, dance, chew, or date those that do, something like that, right? I don't know, you've probably heard a version of that. Uh, and so now you're kind of like, oh, to heck with all that stuff. I can do whatever I want and still follow Jesus. Well, that's not entirely accurate either, is it? So we do have freedom in Christ, but we also need to be discerning, as we said, discerning children of the light. We saw last week there is a kingdom approach that more accurately reflects God's love for the world and his appreciation for cultural expressions and differences, yet also maintains the distinction that Jesus said will exist. Jesus said it. Our Lord said it, right? That there is the church and there is the world. There is us and there is them, but it's not us against them, it is us for them. And look at this, so this is what we said the kingdom approach looks like. It's disciples creating culture and following Jesus by number one, entering the culture, thereby affirming what we can, which will involve us being fluent with the culture. We'll talk about that later on in the series. Entering the culture, number two, challenging the culture, so confronting its idols and its darkness. And number three, appealing to its listeners, offering a new story and vision. As I said before, each message will touch on these steps to some degree and expand on them more as we move along in the series. Last Sunday, we leaned in a little bit to what it looks like to enter the culture, and now we should work for the good of the city. And this morning, we're gonna give our direct attention to number two there, in a message entitled, Confronting the Idols of Culture. You see, the Bible tells us that God's people are exiles on the earth until Christ returns and brings the fullness of the kingdom. We saw that last week. And, but in the meantime, we want to be faithful to Jesus as we embody the good news and navigate this present evil age. Now, I use that word embody a lot, and I hope that that becomes clear this morning, the reason why we're doing that, because I know the evangelicalism that I grew up in, a lot of it was just mental. It was ascribing to certain positions and certain beliefs, you see, but Jesus calls us to embody the gospel. You can think about where Paul says that our bodies do not belong to ourselves, that they were bought at a price. They belong to Jesus. Isn't it just for us to do whatever we want to do or feel like doing? We listen to Christ. So we enter the culture. We affirm what we can to be sure, but there will be times when we must resist dehumanizing beliefs and behaviors of the world. And so in this third message, we'll see the need and hear the call for us to confront the idols of culture with the gospel of Jesus. Uh, Last Sunday, we saw this from Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse four through seven. This is his letter to the exiles in Babylon. He said, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Notice God had something to do with that. Number five, build houses, verse five, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so they may have sons and daughters, increase in number, do not decrease. Jeremiah is saying, live there, settle in, settle down, you're there to stay. Verse seven, also seek the peace, the Hebrew word shalom there, 
that's a holistic word for peace, for uh, prosperity, for uh, wholeness. Pray for that. Seek it. Pray for it. For the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, who were these exiles? Uh, scholars believe that 25% of the Jewish population were deported to Babylon when Babylon came in and sacked the city and the temple. So that means there were young people, the best and the brightest, which didn't include Jeremiah. That's why he's writing this letter to those exiles in the first place. Now, some of those exiles, the young people, the, the, the best and the brightest, as we said, are Daniel and his three friends. And if you grew up in the church, you know those names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those are actually their Babylonian names. Uh, they had Hebrew names, of course, but they were given Babylonian names. So it was Daniel, Belteshazzar was his Babylonian name. And they stayed committed to Yahweh while living in Babylon. They, they, they would seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Now, they would seek the common good but yet they would also be faithful followers of Yahweh, and that's gonna get them into trouble when they confront the idols of Babylonian cultures we'll see today. So the book of Daniel is about their time as exiles in Babylon. So in the book of Daniel, he gives, you could think of it this way, advice and encouragement for those who are living in exile, even generations after the Babylonian exile. As I said, I think we should rightfully see that God's people until Christ returns should see themselves as exiles, aliens and strangers. The New Testament, as you'll see this morning, uses that language as well. So we enter the culture, we seek the common good, but we practice our religion and faith in public. We confront the idols of culture and we are to be ready for opposition from unbelievers. We can see that in several primary stories in chapters one through six, stories of faithfulness and deliverance, how God blesses and protects his children in exile. Now, if you want this afternoon, before you take a nap on this cloudy, rainy afternoon, uh, you can read this book in one sitting, and you'll see chapter seven through 12 after those stories, are Daniel's visions of future kings and kingdoms coming to ruin because of rebellion against God. Remember that Tower of Babel stuff we talked about last Sunday? This is just continuing to play itself out, which is at the core, the core of that rebellion is idolatry and humans defining right and wrong for themselves. So the promise of Daniel is that God will one day establish his king and his kingdom which will never be destroyed. And so in Daniel 7, we see the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. You will recall that Jesus in his mock trial referenced that passage and said, that's me. Right? That's Jesus. Jesus has come as the true king to establish his kingdom forever. Uh, let's read one of those stories together, shall we? If you would open up to Daniel chapter three. I'm not gonna have this on the screen because we're gonna look at the whole chapter. Now we'll go through this pretty quickly. I'll make some comments along the way, but I definitely want us to read the story from start to finish. So Daniel chapter three, beginning with verse one. And I won't make you stand this morning, so. You're getting comfortable, you're 
tuned in? Some of you ready to take some notes. So here we go. Daniel chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar is this great king of Babylon. He's putting this statue in place. It says what he thinks of himself, but also this is how power enforces its, its rule, its reign, its law, its order. Right, this is an example of that. And then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue that he had set up. So all these officials came and stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. By the way, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. That may vary a little bit from yours. Verse four, then a herald shouted out, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, the other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. So look at that. King Nebuchadnezzar has a band long before Sergeant Peppers. Some of you will get that. Verse 6. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Oh, happy day. Verse 7. So at the sound of the musical instruments, the band begins to play, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bound to the ground and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, long live the king. You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of your band play. Verse 11, that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into a blazing furnace, like the king needs a reminder of his own decree, right? But you can see they're setting him up to hear what comes next. There are some Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you've put in charge of the province of Babylon, and they pay no attention to you, your majesty. They refuse to serve your gods and do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. And when they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods or to worship the gold statue that I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue that I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace, and then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve, he's able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. And notice they still are giving respect to the king, but kindly disagreeing. But even if our God doesn't save us, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, 
that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was so furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage, what some of you look like when you're hangry. He commanded them that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. And then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up, threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king in his anger had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied now, fell into the roaring flames. Now, we're not real sure what this furnace is. Probably not designed just to throw human beings in it, but it's obviously large enough to do that. Look what happened. Suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement and exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men unbound walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. Then Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stepped out of the fire and then the high officers, officials, governors, advisors crowded around them and saw that the fire had not touched them. Not a hair on their heads was singed and their clothing was not scorched. They didn't even smell of smoke. And then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel to rescue his servants who trusted in him. They defied the king's command and were willing to die rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make this decree. If any people, whatever the race or nation or language, speak a word against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they will be torn limb from limb and their houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. There is no other god who can rescue like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to even higher positions in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. So here we see three young people confronting an idol and then experiencing the blowback and the consequences of that resistance. And in this case, God protects them and delivers them. Now they were prepared for God not to do that, as you remember they said, but yet God does. God protects them, he delivers them, and ultimately blesses them for their stand against this idol. Now, we should think about this, ask this question, why would they take such a risk? Was one idol really all that big of a deal? I mean, maybe God would have just overlooked that day in the court when the band began to play and everyone was kneeling. Was it worth damaging their reputations, forfeiting their privileged status in the king's court? Was it really worth their lives? What's the big deal with idols anyway? Well, let's think about that for a moment and define what idolatry is and 
where it can be found. Remember the first of the Ten Commandments, we see this Exodus 20 verse three, is that you shall have no other gods before me. Notice that's the first of the Ten Commandments because whatever you love, your life is ordered accordingly. It sets a trajectory, right, for your path. And so if there is a creator, we believe that there is, and he created us to work according to his software, his operating system, let's put it that way, and we don't, then it brings chaos, disorder, destruction, and harm not only to ourselves, but to an entire culture. What is idolatry? Simply defined, Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. Now think about that. Do you feel this way about anything in your life other than the Lord? Whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life as meaning. Then I'll have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. This really, this really moves us past, you see, objects of stone or wood or, or bronze or gold, right? Doesn't it? Idols aren't just these, these objects of worship like we think of in the ancient world. The prophet Ezekiel said that we can have idols of the heart. Idols of the heart. I want us to think about that this morning. The Apostle Paul said that there are cultural idols of the heart. And Keller says, making an idol of something means giving it the love you should be giving to your creator. Therefore, we should really think about it this way. At the core of human sin is idolatry. Again, a, a reason to begin the commandments there. It is misdirected love a misuse of human energies, as one Greek Orthodox person said it, a misuse of human energies. It is misdirected love, and idolatry is a lot like an addiction. If you've ever been addicted to anything, you know this. We, we become entangled. We become entrapped in it. Sometimes we completely deny that there is a problem, all right? And in that way, our idols and the idols of culture have an even greater hold on us then we are aware, and so someone needs to point them out. But we don't want people pointing them out, do we? None of us do, I don't. We're all in this together, aren't we? So of course when someone points this out, they call out an idol, idol or, or they stand up to one, there is hostility. I don't know if you were paying attention to the picture earlier of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was kind of maybe dark in the corner, but you could almost see this, this person in the right-hand corner of that picture grabbing a hold of one of them. Like, what are you doing? You do not defy Nebuchadnezzar. You do not stand up to the idols. And maybe some of us have experienced that, right? Even in our own families, even in the church. That hurts the worst, doesn't it? You feel that you're operating on conviction, much like these three men in this story. And God doesn't want me to do that. Yet the stream of culture is moving fast in one direction in dehumanizing ways, and nobody can seem to see it. We don't call it idolatry, we call it progress. 
Sometimes we call it other things. Well, let's li- listen and read here how the Apostle Paul says that the world lives in denial about what is obvious about idolatry, that is rebellion against God, and it leads to moral confusion, it leads to greater evils and the total breakdown of society and culture. Let's look at that, Romans chapter one, if you would open up your Bibles there to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans chapter one. I'll read verses 18 through 25. Listen as we read this. Paul's not only describing something that happened a long time ago in Babel or Babylon, but something that continues to happen today. Romans 1 verse 18, but God shows his anger, the NIV says wrath, from heaven against all sinful wicked people who suppress the truth, suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, I don't know how you understand that. I certainly know how, how I was taught to understand God's wrath, but these days, I think of God's wrath in in that principle that Paul shares of reaping what we sow. If God is the creator and the designer, and this is his operating program, then he's built in within that system uh, mechanisms that that, uh, are kicked into place when we buck his system, right? When we go against his desires, his will for creation, we then experience the consequences. We could call that wrath. Again, I think God sort of builds that into the system. There's reaping and then there is sowing. We accumulate for ourselves that which we sow, we reap. Do you understand what we're saying? I think that this is what the New Testament perspective really is all about. Now, thank God in Christ that we don't get what we deserve, right? Because Jesus has taken it upon himself. But listen to what Paul is saying. Wicked people suppress the truth by their wickedness, and this is storing up God's wrath on a day of judgment. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. Verse 20, for every, ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, right? They've seen creation. Though everything God made, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Paul is saying to us that all of the created order should cause us to reach out and seek God. We say there is a creator, we should get to know him. Yes, they knew God, verse 21, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. And they began to think of foolish ideas of what God was like. They they got their portrait of God wrong, right? (laughs) That messes everything up. Maybe even to the point of denying that God. As a result, their minds became dark and confused, claiming to be wise, we're so smart, we're so enlightened, we're so advanced in those previous cultures. You know, we don't ever hear that today. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshiping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshiped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. That's what happened. So God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired, and as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. That's what happens. You get some bad ideas, it comes out in the body and it's embodied in culture. 
Verse 25, they traded the truth about God for a lie, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself who's worthy of eternal praise, amen. This isn't just a passage, you see, describing those people we see out in the street. I think we need to be honest about this. It's also about those who we see in the mirror. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says the line between good and evil run not between us and them, but down the middle of each of us. Paul is saying this is what happens to us in our culture when we have disordered loves. Eventually, God says, as we hear here in Romans 1, all right, fine, do it your way. And notice, idol worship and the disorder and harm that results isn't just a problem for theists, right? For people who believe in God and a moral lawgiver. Now, the author David Foster Wallace, who was not a Christian, once wrote, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. So what are some of the American idols that are being worshiped today? What are the idols of the heart in our own culture? Let's think about some of those. Here are just a handful. We see them, these idols of the heart in American culture, money and greed, success and fame, sports, expressive individualism. The most important thing is for me to be authentic to my feelings, regardless of any design by God. Sex and sexuality have become an idol. Entertainment and food, power and uh, domination, technology. You know, I, I can't even find a human being in the grocery store anymore. It might be better for profits, but is it better for humankind? Is it better for humanity, for relationships? We've already done away with the front porches. And you think about why we have so many issues today relating to people. This disconnect from one another, the rich from the poor, the so, so forth and so on. Consumerism, war and violence, nationalism, political ideologies, even social activism can become an idol. And you think about those that are highlighted there, which are pretty typical, these primary idols of every age, money and greed, the drive for more revenue and more profit, no matter its impact. Uh, I think we're seeing this for for some of you who like to binge watch TV shows and uh, some of our favorite movies. I'm not going to name any names or any names of shows, but if you pay attention to this thing, sometimes they're putting out really low quality stuff because they are rushing to make money and they know they can do it. And you just see this on multiple levels within society. People not thinking about what's best for our local communities, not thinking about what's best for society, but only thinking about how they can make a profit end over end every year. Is this the world that we want to live in where money and greed are idols? I should think not. Same with sex and human sexuality, where we now live in a hyper-sexualized culture. Everything is about this, and we live in a very sexually confused culture today. 
Power and domination is the same, same way and we've gone to extremes there. All of these things are meant for good, the Lord would tell us. All of them are meant for good, but we have distorted them and we have taken them to extremes where now everybody sees everything through the lens of power and that now we can't trust anybody. Certainly our leaders, again I ask, do you wanna live in a world like that? I don't. So think about these American idols. Listen to these familiar words as you think about those idols, these words from the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 12, verse one and two, Paul said, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God approves of, right? What is God's will? What is good? What is for the common good? You'll know when you don't conform. You'll know when you're being transformed by the renewing of your mind. You'll know when you have an embodied faith. I hear Paul saying all of those things. And why is the renewing of the mind so critical? It's because in the words of Tom Wright, evil is what you get when the mind is twisted out of shape and the body goes along for the ride. And so does the culture, doesn't it? In other words, we, we see all kinds of troubling things done in the body, to the body and with the body because our minds aren't right about God, about truth and reality, about recognizing the created order and design, about who we are and whose we are and what it means to live according to God's wisdom, not the wisdom of the world. So how do we do this? How do we offer our bodies as living sacrifices? How do we resist the idols of culture and the pattern of this age that would have us to bow down, to conform, to fall in line when the band begins to play? Where do we begin? Brothers and sisters, I think we have to begin with the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus tells us in response to this question, what is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? And Jesus sums it all up and says, in fact, you could hang all the Bible on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. Right? Your heart, your soul, your mind, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Look at that. Love your maker and love your neighbor. You see, loving God with your whole being comes before loving our neighbor. You can't properly love self and love neighbor without loving God first. This is the order Jesus gives us. And I think many people are trying to do that. And as, as well-intentioned as people are, we get it wrong because we mess with the order. If we don't begin by orienting our hearts to God and ordering our loves in a life of worship of God, then we inevitably will go off the rails. Now as I say this, I know that your mind is going to this segment of the culture and this, this group in the, in, in the population and the, these problem people in America, and that is the problem with the church. Part of the problem is that's where we keep thinking. And we need to start thinking here. We need to start thinking with the people of God, amen? 
It's like Paul said, that let the judgment of God begin with the house of God. Where do we see this happening among us? Loving God is about worship. It's about conforming to his word, not bending the scriptures to fit any of our agendas and ideologies, any of them. Jesus shows us that. Every time they tried to get him to weigh in, one group of people would come, one faction would come, one party would come, and they would say, Jesus, how do you answer this question? What do you think about this issue? And Jesus said, you're asking all the wrong questions. Let me ask you a question instead. You see, they're not thinking on the level and the plane of the kingdom. They're thinking on the level and the plane of the world. They've not risen above the us against them. And so they couldn't see, the people of God couldn't see it as us for them. They couldn't see that God was in their midst, that God had become flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood and wants them to do the same. Instead, they had an agenda. Instead, they had an ideology. Whether it was the left or the right, it didn't matter. Jesus said no to them and said, come and follow me. You take a tax collector and you take a zealot who wants to kill tax collectors and Jesus said, come and follow me. Learn from me that my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I speak the words from the Father, the words of truth. And those who hear the truth can be set free. Free from this madhouse. I always think of that. Charlton Heston, Planet of the Apes. It's a madhouse, you know. How often I feel this way, and probably you feel this way. It's time to listen to Jesus. It's time to get the order right. Loving God is about having our hearts and our minds shaped by holy habits and religious routines, you see, if we want to order our loves. Yes, I use that word religious. Remember, religion and being religious is not a bad word here at Grantham. We define it this way. Religion is a socio-cultural system of designated beliefs, values, behaviors, and practices that provide meaning and purpose. They help aim our loves in the right place. Do you see that? I think part of the problem of the malformation and the shallowness of evangelicalism is we've thrown off all religion. We said it was bad, and that Jesus hated it. What Jesus hated was hypocrisy, that we would do the religion without loving God and loving neighbor. He spoke of it time and time again, amen? And so we need it. We need to recognize that Jesus had, a, had Jewish colors that he wore. He, wore, he had a prayer tassel. He went to synagogue re- regularly. He went to the temple. He fasted and he prayed and he went to Jewish festivals. Jesus was religious. And we should want to be religious like Jesus because even Jesus, the Son of God, knew the power of the world but also knew the power of liturgy and of formation. We need it to aim our love at God, right? God doesn't need our religion. We need it so that we can love God and love neighbor properly, embracing practices of prayer, scripture, sacrament, and all sorts of liturgies, not just in the church, but at home, so that we can be properly formed in worship. And so that is the purpose of the Christian religion. It's two-part, to properly form disciples, to be like Christ, If you think about all the secular liturgical formation that is happening every time you turn on the TV, 
when you're streaming, when you're podcasting, when you're going to work, when you're turning on the radio. These are liturgical forces that are seeking to shape your mind to a particular worldview. And we, we, we've got, folks, we've got to want more than the left version and the right version. We want Jesus' version of that. And the way to get it, the way that it ought to be, is in the church with God's people who continue to come to the Gospels. We come to the Scriptures to have our faith and our, and our, and our hearts and our minds and our bodies shaped by the Gospel of Christ. If, we're, if we have any chance, you see, of standing up against the liturgical forces of the world, then we have to have some commitments. We have to have some liturgies. We have to have some formation. So you can see why I get so bothered by this anti-religious sort of thing that we say and we do. We're rejecting the thing that we need. We need more of it. We need to be with the church. We need prayers, we need scripture reading, we need holy habits. You see, my friends, when we are properly, and being properly formed in the way of Jesus, when our hearts and our minds are being saturated in the scriptures, and we're rooted in our belief in the gospel of Christ, which says we're sinners and in need of a savior, and that his way is better than our way, that we are broken and not as we should be, right? but we're loved by God. He doesn't leave us that way. We'll recognize the idols when we see them. That's when we'll see them. And God will give us the courage to stand when the crowd is bowing down. And we don't do it with hatred in our hearts. We still say, your majesty, we will not bow down. And though many will not understand, there will be others, you know, who see your countercultural decisions and your non-conforming actions as the wisdom of God and the kingdom come. Not all, but some will. It will hold a mirror up to the idolatry that brings disaster upon us all. As the book of Daniel seeks to prepare us for this opposition, so does Peter in the New Testament, our last scripture for this message. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. He said, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, New Revised Standard Version says, aliens and exiles, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly. The NIV says to live good lives. Another says, as long as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. And Peter said, then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, you know, you know the truth, right? Even though they accuse you of doing wrong, they'll see your honorable behavior just like Nebuchadnezzar, and they'll give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. Let it be said of us at Grantham Church. May we be like those men in Babylon and the scores of men and women, saints who've gone before us, who for the love of God and their neighbor confronted the idols of culture for the sake of humanity's flourishing as signposts to God's coming kingdom. Amen.
Finally, church, here are some questions to help us to respond this morning to what we have heard. Again, I know that when we start confronting idols, even without me going into specifics, notice I didn't do that. You know, it's like they used to say when you, in the evangelical world, when you go on a date, you know, leave some space in between you and your girlfriend for the Holy Spirit, you know. I want to leave some space for the Holy Spirit to speak to you. Because when the Spirit speaks, it goes a whole lot further than when I speak. Number one, here's a question for reflection and response. Do you notice the idols in American culture today? Does your identity as a disciple shape the way that you see them? You know, if you're not orienting